Praise God for our choir. Amen. Amen. who is always faithfully uh, comes to sing and to praise and magnify the Lord. Today we, we see a, a text that if we look upon it correctly, and if we look upon it with, with spiritual eyes, should force us to, to dramatically live for Christ. When was the last time you saw an artistic image, a painting, or, or a drawing of Christ that portrayed this image that the Apostle John just gave us? When was the last time you saw an image of Christ that, that, that depicted him as a mighty warrior, a mighty king who will one day judge the world in all injustice. When was the last time? Next time you're on a computer, I want you to go to yahoo.com. I want you to go to google.com. I want you to go to their search engine. I want you to pick push the, the word image, and I want you to type in uh, a picture of Christ, artistic images of, of Christ, and, 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 and be more specific, put, put in there uh, a picture of Jesus Christ as warrior or king, and I want you to, to look at the screen and notice the type of pictures that will come up. Because you and I, we will be hard-pressed to find a picture that depicts Jesus in this way. We will be hard-pressed to find images of Jesus that, that, that show him as a strong and a mighty warrior. It would be easy to find pictures of Jesus that is depicted as gentle, as meek and as mild, but it's, it's more of a, of a challenge to see a picture that shows Christ as a strong, supreme, and unstoppable king. And we'll find him holding a lamp. We'll find him surrounded by children holding up a peace sign. We'll find him with a light around him, with, with pale skin and, and blue eyes, but we'll be hard-pressed to find a picture like this. And I'm telling you today that the church needs this picture. The church needs this picture of Christ, this revelation of Jesus Christ as, as a mighty warrior king. The church is in desperate need of this portrayal. We need it just as bad as the seven churches of Asia needed it. That's who this letter is written to. John the Apostle is on an island called Patmos. He's been exiled or, or kicked out of Asia for, for preaching the gospel. And now at an old age, he has written the seven churches in which he has most labored to. And, and he knows, and God knows, that they need this vision of the end times. They need this vision of Christ. They need it for a number of different reasons. The first reason that they needed this picture of Christ was because they were sleeping 
or sinking into a, 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 a deep sleep, so to speak. We read in Revelation chapter 2 that they were losing their fire. They were losing the, the flame that they once had. They were becoming lukewarm and, and walking away from their first love. The second reason why they needed this depiction, this picture of Christ as mighty king and warrior is because they were facing trials and, and tribulations. They were being persecuted for their faith. They had a king, an emperor by the name of Domitian, who was a, a terrible emperor. He was persecuting people who were speaking boldly of Christ towards the end of his reign. The early Christians would have loved to have George W. Bush Sr. as their emperor. He, he would have made, uh, uh, this, this emperor would have made George Bush look like a saint and, and Nixon look like an, in, uh, uh, an angel. They would have loved to have Barack Obama as their president or as their emperor. Domitian was, was out to get them. He was out to harm them, and they desperately needed to see Christ in this light. And the church of today will not aggressively pursue the Great Commission and our call to, to live out our lives for Christ radically and with urgency if we do not have this glorious, this beautiful picture of Christ. So I want to ask you a question today. When you think of Christ, and when you sit back and you imagine Christ, what image is burned on your brain? What picture comes to mind? When you stop and you meditate and you think about Christ, do you imagine him as a soft, frail, pale, broken man who needs our help? Or do you see him? And the light in which we behold in this chapter. Do you see him as a supreme, unstoppable warrior king? For how we see Christ will dramatically affect how we live for him and how we worship before him. I'm going to say that again. How we see Christ will dramatically affect how we live for him and how we worship him. I wonder what was the, the look on John's face when as verse 11 says, the heavens opened and he saw a white horse and the one who was sitting on it. I, I wonder if John stopped and he stood in awe just as he had many times before as a disciple that walked with Jesus for three and a half years. I, I wonder when he had this vision, did his mouth drop and did his eyes become enlarged? Like the times when, when Jesus was on the scene. You know, you know, I wonder if his eyes had that, that glare, if he had a, 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 a look of awe, just like he must have had when Jesus began to preach in Galilee, a message of repentance. And when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, I wonder if he stood in awe when God gave him this vision and the heavens 
opened and he saw a king riding on a white horse. I wonder if he stood in awe like he must have had when, when he saw Jesus heal Peter's mother. I wonder if he stood in awe just as he had before when he saw Jesus walking on water. I wonder if he stood in awe just as he had before when, when they were in the midst of a storm and, and, and they were nervous and they thought they were going to die and they went and woke up Jesus and Jesus stood up and he just said three words, peace, be still. I wonder if he stood in all just as he must have stood in all when he saw Jesus heal ten lepers and one came back to say thank you. Action neighbor, are you the one? I wonder if he stood in awe, just as he must have been in awe at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus' outsides went in and his insides went out and he had a holy prayer meeting with Elijah and Moses. I wonder what was the look on John's face when he saw the heavens open. I wonder if he had the same look of awe as he must have had when when he saw his savior, his friend, his teacher ascend back to the Father. I wonder. I wonder. I wonder how he looked. I do know. As a mere mortal, as a, as a man, that, that he had to stand in awe. I, I do know that he, he had to have a, a sense of comfort as he was exiled from everyone and sitting on an on a island at an at a old age. I do know that a, a sense of comfort had to overtake him, and a, and a sense of power from the Holy Spirit must have overtaken him. And I pray today that as we look at this text that we would be at all of our mighty Savior. We need to see the heavens open in this passage so that we can see the beauty of our warrior king. And the question that I want to ask you today is, can you see it? Can you see this picture of Christ? We, we need to see the heavens open. We, we need to see it. Can you see Jesus on a white horse? Verse 11 says, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The last time that John saw Jesus on an animal was the week before his crucifixion. The last time that John saw Jesus on a, an animal was when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on a donkey in order to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah that told Israel to look out for their coming king who will be mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the fall of a donkey. The last time that John saw Jesus, it was a, a different picture of him. The donkey that Jesus rode on as he entered into Jerusalem represented peace and humility symbolically told 
The Jews, and it symbolically tells us today that during Jesus' first missionary journey to earth that he did not come to wage war with humanity, but that he came to bring peace on earth and goodwill to all men, women, and children who would look upon his cross in faith. Jesus came into the city. The Bible says that all of those who were in the city of Jerusalem, that they met him and that they they yelled, Hosanna, all of his disciples. They yelled, Hosanna, Hosanna. The Bible says that they took took branches off the trees, palms, and they laid it on on, on the streets and that they gave him a king's welcome. It's funny. It's beautiful. The response of Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem the week of his death, knowing that he was going to die, that he accepted their praises, knowing that the same ones who yelled Hosanna would stand before the governor and yell, crucify him. Crucify him. Jesus, as he came to donkey, he was showing them that I have not come to wage war. I have come in humiliation. I have come in peace. I have come in peace. This donkey that Jesus rode in on, it it represented reconciliation. It represented salvation. It represented an opportunity to be united with Christ. But in this text, we see him coming in on a white horse. And it represents something else. See, a white horse in ancient Roman times was a a war horse that was ridden on by victorious people, by by a victorious army, by a victorious general. This horse represented war. Represented victory. It represented power. It didn't represent humiliation and peace. John sees Jesus in his vision as the mighty commander and chief whose reputation precedes himself. The question is, who is Jesus coming to wage war with? He came on a donkey before, now we see a picture of him coming back and he has a a white horse. Who is he coming to wage war with? I mean, Jesus has already conquered death and disarmed the power of sin and made a way for broken people like you and me to be reconciled to the Father. What else is there to do? Who is he coming to wage war with? And he did that on a donkey. In verse 20, it tells us this whole picture from verse 17 through 21 tells us, but in verse 20, we we see and it says, and the beast was captured, which is the Antichrist. The beast is the Antichrist, and, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped the image. 
1920 lets us know that when Jesus returns, he is coming on a white horse to destroy the wicked and to overthrow the Antichrist. And as Revelation shows us, chapter 20, uh, uh, that he is coming to set up his millennium rule on earth. And, and that after that, he will come again. He will rise again and, and finally destroy Satan and all evil. And the question I want to ask you once again is, do you see Jesus as sovereign king who will one day ride on the clouds of heaven on a white horse to make war with the false prophet and with the Antichrist and those who reject him and worship the idols themselves. Will your heart allow you to see Jesus on the white horse who comes to judge in righteousness and who comes to make war? Or do you still see Jesus on a donkey? You know, not everyone's heart would allow them to see the divine, see through this divine lens and this divine light. Not everyone's heart will allow them to see Jesus as the one who is coming to make war because we live in the midst of a society that wants to build their own Jesus. We live in a day and age where people only want to see one hand, one side of God, one, one hand of Jesus. We live in a day and age where, where people only want to emphasize certain attributes and minimize others. They are quick to talk about God as love. Quick to quote scriptures about God being love. God is love. First John chapter 4, verse 16 says, God is love. John 3:16 says, For God so loved the world. Everybody on earth loves this hand of Jesus, loves to constantly talk about how God is love and how He's compassionate. And they're quick to quote scriptures about how Jesus was compassionate and, and we must be compassionate. How, how how Jesus loved everyone and we must love everyone. How Jesus was all-inclusive and we must be all-inclusive. They're, they're quick to quote verses that, about Jesus' com compassion. They're quick to remind us that, that Jesus was moved with compassion when he saw the woman who touched the hem of his garment and who had an issue of blood. They're, they're quick to bring up how, how Jesus was moved with sympathy and, and compassion when last had died and how he wept. They're, they're quick to bring up how Jesus was moved with compassion when he saw 5,000 men that were hungry with women and children and how he fed the 5,000 with two fish and five loaves. They are quick to bring up the compassion of Christ and the grace of God. They're, they're quick to remind us that, that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Most people are quick to show this side of our Savior, and it is a wonderful side, and I praise him for his love. I praise him for his compassion. I praise him and thank him for his grace. I thank him for having mercy, but the Bible speaks of another hand of Jesus. The Bible shows another picture of our God, a picture that we as Christians must, must paint for the world, a picture that we must preach to the world. So we need to talk about scriptures like Psalms 5 and 5, which says the Lord hates all evil doers. Not the Lord dislikes but the Lord hates 
It doesn't say that the Lord loves the person but hates the sin. It says God hates all evildoers. He's just that divine. That he can love and hate at the same time. It's not up for me to figure it out, but I know that, that God says that he hates all evildoers. We leave out this other hand of God. We hide it and ignore it as if we're ashamed of it. We ignore texts like Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, that says, when God told Moses, see now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. We forget that God doesn't always visit individuals and hasn't always visited individuals throughout this historical narrative called life on a donkey, but that God, in fact, has showed up in history's past, metaphorically speaking, on a white horse. God showed up on a white horse after Adam and Eve sinned. And the Bible says that he cursed Satan and he cursed Adam and Eve for defying his word. God showed up on a white horse when he came and he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah by, by fire. God showed up on a white horse when Achan stole and, and buried a treasure that was God's. God showed up on a, on a white horse when Pharaoh was holding his children captive after Moses said, let my people go. He showed up on a white horse and, and sent ten plagues. God showed up on a white horse. When David was treacherous and he, he killed one of his best men, a man of valor, a, valor a, a man by the name of Uriah, God showed up on a white horse and said, David, because of your sin, you still got to reap what you've sown. And as a result, his family was cursed, and, and his own sons wanted his blood. God sometimes do show up on a, on a white horse. Showed up, book of Acts, to a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira, who lied to the Holy Spirit in order to impress their congregants. said that they gave what they did not give. Bible says that God had both of them just drop dead. Oh, how we love sermons that's name it and claim it. Look, and, and if you see it, you can be it, and if you grab it, you can have it. 
how we love. The right hand of God that's love, compassionate, and mercy, and, and, and how we ignore the other hand of God as if it's evil, as if it's two gods that we serve. We don't serve two gods. We serve one God, and, and people kill me. Talking about the God of the Old Testament. is not the same God in the New Testament. Maybe they don't know and, and have not read and, and don't know the teachings of Christ. Jesus talked more about hell than he talked about heaven. Same God that was after justice in the Old Testament is the same God that's after justice today. And he's the same God that one day will destroy all injustice. Theologian A.W. Pink perhaps best contributes when he says that a, a study of the concordance will show that there are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to his love and tenderness because God is holy. He hates all sin. Because he hates all sin, his anger burns against the sinner. People say that they can't accept God on a donkey. That they can accept God on a donkey, but they can't accept God on a white horse. Because they don't see how a loving God can punish people for eternity. They say that God if this is God, that he ceases to be perfect. Once again, A.W. Pink says these words. Now, the wrath of God is as much divine as a divine perfection as is his faithfulness, power, and mercy. It must be so, for there is no blemish, not the slightest defect in the character of God, yet there would be if wrath were absent from him. Unresponsiveness to sin is moral leprosy. How could he who is the sum of all excellence look with equal satisfaction upon the virtue and the vice? On those who are wise and folly. How could he who is infinitely holy disregard sin and refuse to manifest his strictness towards it? How could he who delights only in that which is pure and holy not loathe and hate that which is impure and vile? How could a holy God look at that which is both good and evil with a smile. As a church, we've got to make sure that we're not showing one hand of God and hiding the other. 
as a people, we've got to make sure that we are telling people not only about the donkey, but about the white horse. We, we've got to make sure that we tell them about the gentle lamb and the mighty warrior. We've got to make sure that we don't just tell them about the one who will not crush a bruised reed, but that we also would tell them that we serve the one who took captivity captive. We have to paint a proper picture of Christ. <coughs> a proper picture of Christ. Perhaps this is why men don't come to church like they should. Perhaps this is why the church has become so feminized. Perhaps this is why there's a seven to three ratio in most pews on Sunday. Because we have presented only a side of our Savior and we don't see the, the side that we ought to see. Perhaps we need to go through a season where we just preach Christ as a mighty warrior. Perhaps we need to remind people that we ought to lift up our heads, O ye gates, and be he lifted up, ye, ye mighty doors, and the King of glory will come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Of a of God who, who loves, but a God who also hates, of a, of a God who is powerful enough to bring you out of anything, but a God who will punish you if you remain in the same old sinful thing. We need both hands of God to be visible in order that the world may see Christ as his mighty king. Do you see Christ as a divine warrior? You see how intimidating Christ must look to his enemies in this passage? And yet how glorious he must look to those who are in his army? Do you see the picture of Christ on a white horse with a look of vengeance and a look of justice with a look that says I am he who said that I was coming back and today is the day or do you still have a picture of him bleeding with the crown looking weak you have to see both pictures of him. look at the the, the the text, verse 12 says that his eyes are like a flame of fire. Now, I've seen people with some eclectic <laughs> and different color eyes. I've seen people with hazel. I've seen people with green. I've seen people with baby blue. I've seen people with orange contacts. I've seen people with all colored eyes that's really not theirs or glass over their eyes. But I have never seen somebody whose eyes look 
looked like fire. And guess what, y'all? He don't have no contacts. Flames of fire. This picture of the eyes of Jesus points to the fact that, that nothing escapes his penetrating vision. Nothing escapes his penetrating vision. He is a God who sees and a God who knows. His judgments are, are always right and accurate. This is a picture of a man whose eyes are perfect. Same eyes that Solomon talked about in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 3. He said, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. When Jesus comes back, he's not going to have to guess who's on his side. He's going to know who's on his side. And folk that you thought was on his side will come out to not be on his side because he doesn't just judge the outside. He cares less about how you look on Sunday, baby. He judges the inside. He judges the heart. Haircut. Looking good. God don't care about your haircut. He cares about what's in your head. Suit coat looking good. Shirt looking good. He cares less about your suit coat and your shirt. And he wants to know what's inside the coat. What's inside the shirt. What's your motives? What's your intentions? Who are you worshiping? Who are you serving? Who are you loving? Who are you caring for? Who are you with? Bible says that on the last day, men will stand before God and say, I preached in your name. I, I prophesied in your name. I, I healed in your name. But, but the flaming eyes of Jesus will look and say, depart from me. I know you not. You was in it for your own gain. You was in it for your own glory. You was in it to impress man, but I wasn't pleased. God has eyes that penetrate past the outside. You can cover it up in the dark, but what's in the dark one day will come in the light. And I'm talking to everybody in here, including me with a capital J. God don't only see what we do in the light, he sees what we do in the dark. When nobody's around, mama and daddy's went to sleep. Co-workers ain't around, friend ain't around, wife ain't around. He sees and he knows. God give us the grace not to be like the Pharisees. Not to be clean on the inside, but dirty on the inside. Who wants to eat from a bowl? that looks spectacular on the outside. But that is filled with worms and dirt on the inside. And why would God want to dwell in heaven with a people who look clean on the outside, but who has hearts of ravenous wolves on the inside? When Christ comes back on a white horse, he's looking for those who loved him, for those who desire him, for those 
who want to know him, for those who desire to know Christ and him crucified. Looking for a people who's not doing it in their own righteousness, but who's trusting in Christ's righteousness. For people who are progressive and not regressive. For people who want to grow, know, go so they can glow. And not people who just want to impress on Sunday, but people who will love him every day of the week, 365 days of the year. And when their heart is cold, they get on their knees and they beg God, God, Revive my heart. I need you. Not only are his eyes like a flame of fire, but the writer of Hebrews talks about it best when he says that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. To whom we must give account. May the recent events in the news of certain celebrities remind us that Christ's words is true. That what is done in the dark will be exposed to the light. that one day each of us will stand before him in the presence of all. And we will have to give account to a God who had a mission and who had a plan and who who had a purpose. And he doesn't want to know about who we impress. He wants to know know whether or not we lived to please him. May God give us all the grace who appear before you to hear those words, faithful servant. Well done. Not only does he have eyes that's like a, a flaming fire, but look at what it says. It says he has many diadems or crowns. This is a, a theme in the book of Revelations. Uh, early on in the book, we see the 24 elders who have crowns, and they take off their crowns, and they throw it at his feet. In the middle of Revelations, we see this great beast who will arise, and the Bible says that he, he has crowns on his head. I believe it gives a number. It's either seven or, or it's nine. But here we see a picture of Christ on a white horse, and it says he has many crowns. He's wearing many fitted hats. Y'all don't hear me. Huh, 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 making New Era look bad. He has many crowns. And what, what John is trying to say is that this man, this, this Christ, he is more than a conqueror. He is the most victorious king of all time. He is the ultimate victor, the kuma sum laude of all things. But you know, I like this next picture of Christ. It says that he is clothed. Look at your your text, verse 13. He is clothed in a robe. Dipped. Dipped in blood. And when I first read this, I almost shouted myself out of the study area that I was at. And and I I said, wow, he's dipped in blood. And the first thing that I I thought about was his own blood. But but as I began to read and study, I realized that that this isn't his own blood. 
saw Christ bleed for the first and last time for our behalf on Calvary's cross. If this was his own blood on a white horse, it would tell the enemies that we've hurted him. We've harmed him in some way. He's weak in some way. This isn't a, a picture of Christ in his own blood. No, no, baby. This picture is, is symbolic of the great battles that he has already fought against sin. This is a picture of our sin on his back. This is a, a picture of my old ways. This is symbolic of how he took all of that on his back and how he still made it through. This is a picture of every lie that you've ever told, of every time you've ever woke up to somebody who wasn't yours. This is a picture of every time we've ever stolen, of everything that we've ever done that was against God. This picture of Christ in a robe dipped with blood. The picture of him being victorious over sin and death. The picture of how he one day will finally defeat Satan and all of his imps and all injustice of one day how he will finally put an end to all pornography, to all gambling, to all lying, to all stealing, to all hatred, how one day he will ride victorious. Can you see Christ on his white horse? It's our victor. Can you see him in his light? The Bible says that he will rule them with a, a rod of iron. Which means that he will, when he comes back, he won't have his staff in his hand. No, 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 no. His sheep know his voice. And a stranger, they will not follow. We, we will line up the way we're supposed to line up. No, he's going to have a rod of iron. A rod of iron was used to beat people to death. It was used to protect against vicious animals that needed to be hit with iron. May the enemies of Christ be intimidated, but may the friends of Christ be encouraged to know that evil will not always prevail. Pray that this picture of Christ, that it will burn into your brain. That your cerebrum would be filled with this image. Picture of Christ to lead us to do three things. First thing it should lead us to do is it should lead us to prepare. It should lead us to prepare. It should, should help us to, to decide whose side are we on. If there is someone here who is not on the side of Christ, who has not given their life to this mighty warrior king, I come to tell you today that you need to do it. You need to prepare for the coming of this king. Yeah. <clears throat> for he is coming back. 
In this text, we see that the author calls him faithful and true. Why does he call him faithful and true? Because Jesus said while he was on earth that he will come back again. And when he comes back, he's coming back with fire. His word is faithful. Everything that he said, it will come to pass. God is not a liar. Not a man that he shouldn't lie. Everything that he says is true. He said that he's coming back, and he is coming back. And the question that you have to grapple with, the question that you have to ask yourself is, am I ready for his return? If Christ was to come back today, would I be in his army, or would I be in the other army? Have you read what happens to those who are not on his side? Verse 17 says, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on a horse and against his army, and the beast was captured. Later on in the text, we see in Revelations that they will finally be destroyed. Whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Are you prepared? You know, a lot of times we talk about signs of the time, signs of the time, signs of the time, signs of the time, signs of the time. We don't know, we don't know. Well, this has to happen, this hasn't happened, this hasn't happened, this hasn't happened. This hasn't happened. And, and while we may say that, and while we may think that, I, I, I want to, to caution you to be very careful because you have not been living for 2,000 years. You don't know when he's coming. That's exactly what he told his disciples. He says, be prepared. He says, be prepared, for you do not know when the Son of Man is coming. The first century church, the century, the church that was right after Christ's death, the ones, the apostles that took over, they did not live as if signs had to happen. They lived as if Christ could come back tomorrow because they understood that when God comes, you don't know how he's going to come. Yeah, we can read about how he's going to come, but we really don't know how that's going to look. What messed up the Jews. Read Old Testament prophecy, read about a king, and they were expecting Christ to come this way, not fully understanding that they missed him. They missed him when he came, when he came on a donkey. He first was coming on a donkey, and then he was coming on a white horse. They, they thought that they were wise, but they turned out to be fools, which means that we must be ready every day. Are you ready? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Have you decided to live for him, to put away the old man and allow him to make you new? And I hear what you're saying. I'm not, I'm not capable of changing myself. I'm not ready to change. I can't do this myself. But you have to know that Christ can do in you what you cannot do in yourself. I'm going to come to Christ when I stop smoking. I'm going to come to Christ. When I stop drinking, I'm going to come to Christ. When I stop doing this, you will never be able to come to Christ 
perfectly or, or in perfection. You will never be able to come to Christ in a way that, in which you will be satisfied or think that he will be satisfied. Christ is the one who makes you clean. Christ is the one who washes you. Christ is the one who perfects you. Christ is the one who takes the dross out of you. Christ is the one who takes the taste from your mouth. Christ is the one who breaks you and who molds you. Christ is the one who gives you life, not yourself. Bible says, who the Son sets free is free indeed. Not only do we, we, we definitely must prepare ourselves because we want to be on the side of him who this text calls faithful and true, him who this text calls the word of God, him who this text calls the kings of kings and the Lord of lords. And not only does this text picture him as this, but it pictures him in a, a far greater light. This text says that he is so holy, he's so divine, he's so beautiful, he's so wonderful, he's so mighty that he is wearing on one of his crowns a, a name that is too holy and too deep to be understood. On Christ is a name that nobody else knows, is a, is a name that is far and above our natural mortal states, is a name that John could not even see properly. He is that awesome that he really can't be named. Amen. Feats his foes. Second thing we must do, not only must we prepare, but we must persuade. It's the job of the church to persuade people to come and join his army. The job of the church is to, prepare, to, to persuade people to come and know this wonderful, mighty king warrior. It's our job. That's why he saved us. That's why he, he ordained us. That's why he predestined us to persuade people in the world to come and to join the one who is called the word of God. That is why we exist. We don't exist for any other reason. The church does not exist to, to be known for a, an elegant preacher or a wonderful choir or wonderful deacons. No, the church exists to persuade people that Christ is coming back again and that he is the only thing that can satisfy us. The only thing that can satisfy us is Christ. Not your car, not your home, not your boyfriend, not your girlfriend, not your TV, the flat screen that's 50 inches, not your Cadillac Escalade, not your penny loafer shoes, not Michael Jackson, not Janet Jackson, not Britney Spears, not Michael Jordan, not LeBron James, not Kobe Bryant, not being in the NFL or the NBA children. Your toys cannot satisfy you. Christmas mornings will not satisfy you. Six days later, you will be unsatisfied when you have played that toy to death. Only Jesus Christ satisfies. And if you are unsatisfied, maybe it's because you came to him for the wrong reason. Some of us think food will satisfy us. So we indulge in food. And we keep indulging because food can never satisfy us. Some of us think 
intimacy and sensuality will satisfy you. You will never be satisfied. Only Christ can satisfy you. Job cannot satisfy you. More money cannot satisfy you. Only the one who died for you 2,000 years ago can satisfy. Your heart was created with a hole. Inside your heart is is created with a hole, and the only thing that can plug that hole is the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the life of Christ. What the early church believed, that's what Paul believed. He said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Next Sunday, you was to walk in this building. Be the first one here. And somebody told you that at some time today, this building will be destroyed by fire, by a bomb. Would you stand out as they came in and talk about things that did not matter? Would you tell them about the game last night? Would you? Tell them about how they look. Would you tell them about how they smell? Would you tell them about your week? Or would you tell them about the terror that is to come if they step foot into this church? Not that they don't look good. Not that sports is not entertaining. Not that movies are not entertaining. But there is a message that is more important than anything else that we can ever speak of. And that is the message of Christ returning as mighty king. May we know this. When we go back to our classrooms the the rest of the semester and as we sit next to a person who is telling you what they did last night and how drunk they were and how they had the craziest night, may we think about the terror that is to come, that they are outside the safety of Christ and that they are in desperate need of a Savior, least their soul burns forever. May we remember this as we talk to our lost loved ones, our our family members who don't know Christ. The next time we're at a Christmas gathering, may we have a picture of terror on our eyes, a picture of a a king who is coming back on a white horse with a a scepter in his hand and with with a, a, a garment that is dipped in blood and with eyes that are blazing like fire. May we remember that those who are not in him will be destroyed. May we remember this one the next time we're in a coffee shop and we're standing next to someone who is just wanting to talk about any and everything. May we not allow them to talk about everything without telling them about a precious Savior who bled and died for them and who hates evil. May we remember this as we communicate with our husband and our wives throughout the week. May we remember that that God sees us and that, that me throwing a fit for five or six days not speaking to my wife is not pleasing God and that God is about love and those who love know that they're really in God. May we remember the message of the gospel at every point of our day. For Christ is coming back because he is faithful and true. People say, well, I don't know what to say. 
When you talk about sports, you don't know all the stats, do you? Man, did you see the game last night? Man, Kobe Bryant was killing him, man. He had about, man, I don't know how many points he had. It was a whole bunch of points. You just told him about Kobe, and you don't know how many points he had. Not only must we prepare, the last thing we must do is we must, we must learn to see Christ as mighty warrior king, and we must learn to praise God for it. Because we have a mighty warrior who fights our battles for us. Do you see this picture? Just go to verse 14. I'm going to sit down and get out your way. Verse 14 says, Listen to this picture. We see this mighty warrior, this mighty king. He's coming back to judge the world. The heavens are open. And look what it says. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword and which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread upon the winepress of fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh is written the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is so interesting. This is so interesting. Verse 14 and verse 15, it tells us something that we should praise God for. We should praise God for. So many times we think of the last days. And this is, this is one of two judgments that will take place in the book of Revelation. But this first one, so, so many times we think of the last days and we think about this battle of Armageddon. And we think about how it's going to be Christ's army and he's going to have all his soldiers, all those who, who stood up for him on earth, all those who were on his side and on his side is going to be Satan and they're going to be the Antichrist and everybody's going to just plunge in and war. But do you see this picture? That's not what the book of Revelation says. The book of Revelation says that his army has a on white linen. Now, I'm not the most intelligent person in the world, but I do know something about how a soldier dresses. A soldier don't wear white linen. I wear white linen in the summertime when I'm trying to take my wife out and trying to be cool. I don't wear white linen if I know I'm about to fight. Do you hear me? I don't even wear white linen if I know I'm going to a barbecue party because I don't want to get it messed up. I wear white linen when I know that I don't have nothing else to do but to look good. Do you see Christ? He is standing before his enemies and his army has on summer clothes, has on white linen and flip-flops. They not worried about dying. They not worried about losing. They not worried about being messed up. They not worried about getting shot or stabbed. We in the back chilling. Look at that, what you gonna do, Jesus? How you gonna work this out? Because I read about how one time Israel went to battle and you just sent one angel to smite over 150,000 men. How you gonna do this thing? What a mighty general we serve. A God that fights our battles for us. A God that will stand flat-footed and say, these are mine. It's two billion versus one, but bring it on. And how will he defeat Satan? Will he use weapons of mass destruction? Will he have an Uzi? Will he have a bomb? Will he have a grenade? No. The Bible says he just opens up his mouth. And the armies are destroyed. 
The same mouth that opened up in Genesis 1 and 1. The same mouth that just spoke and said, let there be light. will speak to Satan and say, be thou removed. He don't even have to bust a sweat. All he's got to do is open up his mouth. Because in his mouth is power. In his mouth is grace. In his mouth is might. In his mouth is strength. In his mouth is the word. Because he is the word. And the same power that he has and that he will release. You've got it in your mouth. All you've got to do is get in your word. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. All you've got to do is open up your mouth and say, Satan, the blood of Jesus is against you. I am the head and not the tail. Walking around defeated like we don't have no power. Don't you know if you were able to just look in the spiritual realm that you got on some white linen? Jesus said, I'll fight your battle. Stand and be still and know that I am God. If you get in the word, you'll have on some equipment that Satan can't touch. If you get in the word, he'll give you a helmet of salvation. If you get in the word, he'll give you a breastplate of righteousness. If you get in his word, he'll give you a shield of faith. If you get in his word, you'll have the sword, which is the word of God. If you get in his word, he'll prepare your feet with the preparation of the gospel. If you get in his word, he'll give you the belt of truth. And when Satan tries to come up against you, he may try, but he won't prevail. Why? Because you are the church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail. Lift up your head, all ye gates, and be ye lifted up, you everlasting door. And the king of glory shall come in. Now, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty and battle. Lift up your head, all ye gates, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord God. He is the king of glory. The great I am. Al Shada, Elohim, Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Jireh, He is the King of Glory. Jesus, my Waymaker, my Liaison, the King of Kings. 